trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. Business etiquette for practicing law in your native country can sometimes be difficult. So if you need to do work in a foreign country, you may want to do some research first, says Terry Morrison. Today's guest on the ABA Journal is asked and answered. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and she's going to be sharing with me some things she learned from working in intercultural communications, global marketing, and globalization. Welcome to the show, Terry. Thank you, Stephanie. It's a pleasure to be here. And you have written various books about international etiquette, and you have a new one that's coming out and published by the ABA in August about being in court and advice for corporate counsels who are going to go on a business trip to a foreign country. Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. The book is called Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands, Courtrooms and Corporate Counsels. And it's both for international travel and for working with diverse populations here in the United States. But it really focuses on intercultural communications and the law. Okay. And how did you learn about how business is done in other countries? What's your background? Oh, I started out as a Spanish teacher many years ago and then went into high tech. And I realized that many of the business problems that they were using me for, because I was the only bilingual person at corporate at that time, these problems were not normal business problems of accounting or legal issues. They were cultural issues. So finally, by the time I went to Booz Allen, I asked my boss if I did a database, if I built a framework that went over business practices and negotiating tips and so forth in all these different countries, would they buy it? And he said, that sounds like a great idea. So I quit and I started my firm over 25 years ago now, and this is my 10th book. Oh, wow. And I am curious with your work in this area, in terms of business etiquette, have you found that the legal profession might be different than other professions when it comes to what one needs to know before going to another country for work? I I think sometimes attorneys have a sense that they have to know everything, which you can't if you haven't been there before, I'm thinking. You can research a lot and try to be prepared, but I'm sure there'll be some surprises. True. There are surprises in just going to an environment that doesn't practice common law. You know, if you're in Europe, they don't have juries. If you're in the Middle East, they use Sharia law, or they might have rabbinical courts. Or if you're in China, you have rule of law. So all of these permutations are completely different than practicing in the U.S., where you can do witness preparations and you have to be very cognizant of the jury pool that you examine as well here because they will come from different ethnicities. So again, it's on it's good for both domestic and international research. I see. And I have to admit, when I first heard about the idea for your book, I thought about deal making. It didn't it didn't really occur to me that a U.S. attorney would go and be in the courtroom in another country, either as a witness or observing or as counsel. But your book does address litigation in courtroom decorum. Can you tell me a bit more about that in terms of how it might differ? You mentioned a little bit, but is there like certain customs or things like that that lawyers may not be aware of? Sure. For example, if you're going to interact in France, 
with a potential client. There's going to be differences from the moment that you meet them, the way you greet them, the way they negotiate is different. For example, they will not expect you to get right to the point immediately. Certain cultures like ours are transactionally based. We, we're like Germans and the Dutch. We're very direct. We believe, and lawyers have to be, right? They need to be honest. They expect that from others. But other cultures, particularly in Asia, are going to be very subtle communicators. They believe in reading beyond what you just said. They think there are nuances in everything, and they expect that you don't come out with the absolute truth initially. So if you come from an indirect culture and then you interact with attorneys from the USA or Sweden or Finland, you're going to have a different approach in the courtroom and you're going to expect different things when you negotiate. You're going to have formality versus informality. Body language is different. There's millions of things that are that are widely variable. And are these things that you can be pretty prepared for before you go, just from reading or about the country or talking to people? Or is it also a bit of you have to have the actual experience yourself to really know what it's like and how you're comfortable handling situations? I think you should do your research before you approach any other kinds of opportunities internationally. Many U.S. organizations, for example, all the Fortune 50 or or just pick somebody like Ernst & Young, they give my first book to all of their new hires because Mm -hmm. they are a multinational and they want everyone to be prepared before they invest the money in the travel and so forth. Other countries actually do a lot more research about cultures and intercultural communication than we do. The Chinese do a tremendous amount of research about us. So before they come here, they probably know a lot more about Stephanie Ward than, you know, maybe somebody from Brooklyn would who's going to interact mm-hmm. with you. Interesting. It's helpful, particularly oh. it discriminates. It shows that you invest the time and you show respect for that individual from another culture. It gives you an advantage over someone who doesn't do any research. Right, absolutely. And I was curious, too, in terms of cultural norms and what's traditional and maybe things that are unsaid, but natives would understand. If you were going to another country as a lawyer to do business and you have a translator or a guide, can you count on him or her to help you a bit understand some of the nuances? (laughs) Good. Well, that's really not their job, Mm. but they often try to help because, you know, if you have a high-level interpreter, that's a very sophisticated job and it's strenuous and they can only work in, say, they're doing contract negotiations or working at the UN. You can only work for about two hours before you become so cognitively drained that you're going to start making errors. Um, It's like Grandmaster Chess. So while they're doing all of this simultaneous translation, it's happening quickly and they don't really have time to turn to you and say, wait a minute, that question isn't really going to work here or shall I reword this or Uh they need more time. But in effect, they have the majority of those skills. 
So, but what happens is if you do a little of the work, if you learn a few words in the target language, that makes you look credible and well-educated. And then that individual will look at you, not the translator. Do you have advice on pinpointing a few words to learn that would be good? And maybe that's in your book as well. Yeah, you always want to try to get the greeting down, whether it's ni hao or bonjour or whatever the language starts with. That's the initial show of respect. But it also works with uh, people who speak English beautifully. You could have a Canadian firm coming to the U.S. to negotiate with you, and they're from Quebec or from Winnipeg, and they come down and in your lobby you have bonjour on the screen or something. That's delightful. That's Mm -hmm. showing that you're thinking ahead. And if you go to other cultures, many executives have different languages printed on the back of their card for wherever they're going, you know. Ah, I see. So essentially, I mean, it sounds like uh, perhaps a lot of being successful in doing business in other countries or when someone from another country comes to your firm is just thinking about what might make it easier for the other party. Exactly. Because you want, it kind of depends in some ways if you're the supplicant, so to speak, if you're trying to get the business or you're the person that they're coming to for advice, your level of hierarchy is going to be different. And that's really important in cultures that are Confucius-based or they're structured in a hierarchical format like India. So you have to know why people ask the questions that they do sometimes. Like if you go to India, they may ask how old you are or how much you earn or are you married or things like that. And that may, a U.S. attorney may think, you know, you could be liable for asking that right, here in the U.S. Right, right. But that's commonplace in India as a means of understanding where you fit in the society. It's not meant to be obtuse or ignorant phrased it a means of comprehending what kind of honors I should afford you. And there are honorifics in other languages like Korean and Japanese and so forth where they don't translate into English, but they're important in that culture. Very interesting. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about taking charge in foreign business interactions versus taking the lead and how that might be perceived. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com slash podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Ward. And on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Terry Morrison, the author of various books on international business etiquette, including the soon-to-be-published book, Kiss, Bow, or Shake Hands, Courtrooms, and Corporate Councils. So when you are in the moment of a business interaction, is it a good idea to hang back a bit and observe what others are doing if it's your first time doing business in the country? Or could that be perceived against you? I would imagine it all depends on where you are and what your position is in the, in the dealing. Exactly. If you are in Russia, for example, or you have Russians 
in your office in Colorado or wherever you are. Russians are going to expect one authority figure to make decisions. They respect strength in an individual. They don't rule by consensus. Okay, so mm. in those scenarios, you know, just look at their leader, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> right. And, um, right. you know, as a matter of fact, he's Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin. He's Vladimir, son of Vladimir. So you have people who are going to respect authority and strong leaders. And then you have egalitarian cultures like Sweden, Finland, Norway, Canada, that respect people who are going to ask for other opinions, everyone has equal value, and then you go to places like Australia where people who put on airs, they think, and are pompous, they have a term for it, like cutting down the tall poppy. They will mock you if you come in there and say, well, I'm the managing partner of such and such. Well, good for you. But that doesn't gain you any respect in Australia unless you have an ability to connect with the people and build a relationship a little bit. And then in Asia, it's consensus-based. So even if you are the direct leader of this group and you get all the respect, if you are too authoritarian and you try to make decisions too quickly, that won't work there because they need time to reach a decision which the whole group discusses, and then, you know, ultimately one individual or two may make that decision, but there's always a lot of input, so you have to change your style. So I think what you said about cutting down the tall poppy, and that was in Australia, correct, or Austria? Right. Mm -hmm. Australia. Australia. So what if you know, you're one of these people, you're the primary decision maker, you're used to being the top dog. I would imagine for people like that, it might be a little hard for them when they go to Australia and it's different. You will get cut down a bit. I find that fascinating. Oh, sure. There are other environments, plenty of them. If you go to maybe Argentina, I know Marcelo Bombao is a great person with the ABA and he's from Argentina. And when you get to know someone after a long time in Argentina and they care for you, then they start to mock you. Then they start to make jokes at your expense. But initially, they're exceedingly formal. And they expect you to take time to build a relationship. They would never appreciate an attorney coming from the U.S. to Buenos Aires and saying, okay, I'm here, it's 9.45, my meeting is now 15 minutes late and I'm angry. They, they don't expect you to be angry over 15 minutes and they don't expect you to start getting down to business immediately and they don't expect you to hold tight to every linear event on an agenda. It's not a linear environment like Germany or the U.S. It's a, everything is done in a circuitous manner in many cultures where you revisit topics, right? I'm curious, have you found, I think that sometimes a legal profession can be somewhat rigid compared to other professions. And I can see we're not starting on time or not getting to the point. But if people are a little nervous anyway, because it's a new environment, and then, you know, all these things I can imagine, have you noticed a difference in how the legal profession tends to do when they're doing business overseas? Well, Sally Swartz gave a great example in the book for, she was a past former president of the SIL, and 
she had an attorney from the U.S. come to her offices in Paris, and he was full of bluster and got increasingly agitated and and somewhat vulgar, right? And Uh he had to shut him down because she said, you know, this is not how we do business in France. And then she told him to sit the heck down, you know, because um, (laughs) she's Sally. (laughs) But that's part of the understanding. Yes, I'm a lawyer, you're a lawyer, and you're used to this in the U.S., but you're not in the U.S. right now. And if you want to be effective here, there's another story of a gentleman who's bilingual in German, and he was doing this very formal, he accompanied the CEO of a U.S. firm to Zurich and in Switzerland, and he's sitting there and the CEOs are talking to each other, and the German CEO couldn't find a word that he wanted, and he's turning to to his general counsel and said, I can't think, in Germany, saying, I can't think of the word for this, and because Gary understands German, he said, oh, do you mean such and so? And the whole meaning whole meeting shifted, the air shifted from exceedingly formal with where you use the form of formal address in German to informal because the German CEO turned to Gary and said in German, you speak German? And he Mm. used the informal form, do. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly all of that changed and shifted and you became more important because you understand the culture, the language, and you didn't brag about it. You know, mm. you didn't come in mm-hmm. here saying, oh, I speak German. You just watched all the protocol, the CEOs talking to each other, and then when the moment was perfect, he offered an answer, and the negotiations really got a lot better from that point out. So it sounds like also it's going to work better for lawyers if they're flexible, which I think is hard for many people, not just lawyers, to be flexible in new settings. But you, it sounds like you've, you've really got to be flexible and just kind of go with how the meeting is going to a certain extent. Would you agree? I agree. I think flexibility is key. I think it's not just verbal. I think if you have um, gestures that you're used to doing in a courtroom or in a meeting where you point or you, you emphatically hit the table or you move around a lot and you go to a different culture, all those gestures mean something else. And it can be just as bad if you're doing it in front of a jury pool and you use gestures that they're going to laugh at because it doesn't mean the same thing in Mexico as, you know, and you're in Texas and you're doing this. So all of that flexibility, all of that knowledge helps all of us. Right. So, and, and that leads to my next question. Can you talk a little bit about how body language might be different in different countries and how that would apply in business settings for attorneys? Absolutely. Everyone knows about eye contact, right? Where Mm -hmm. we we realize that there are, I just mentioned Mexico, all of Latin America has different interaction levels with eye contact depending upon the authority of the people involved. So I made a matrix in this book for a lot of different things and eye contact is one of them. So if you're in certain situations, you understand, oh, they're not going to give me as much direct eye contact between genders in the Middle East, for example, or in Mm -hmm. Latin America, perhaps. But in France, 
they're going to have the most intense eye contact anywhere. And people think they're flirting with them, which could be true, but basically (laughs) they're just French. You know, that's what they do. So this goes across blink rates. It goes across people who smile in the wrong situation. We think they're they're mocking us or they're or they're happy when they're actually frustrated. So again, all of these body language movements and nonverbal communications speak reams in cultures where they really don't use as much body language as we do. For example, if you put an Italian and a Japanese together, they're going to have, be at opposite ends of the spectrum. So the mm-hmm. Italian has to calm down all the, and I'm part Italian, so I can say this, you have to calm down some of the gesticulations. Otherwise, the Japanese person isn't going to hear a word you're saying. They're just mesmerized by your arms going around in your hands, you know, so they don't capture the essence of what you're trying to say. So if you're in a country where maybe the body language is not as pronounced, it would be a distraction. Absolutely. You can find situations where Asian jurors are distracted by the body language of the attorney in the courtroom. And sometimes they will close their eyes and it looks like they're snoozing, but they're not. They're actually just trying to not be distracted by all the wild maneuvers that the attorney is doing. Huh. I'm curious about communication styles. I was thinking specifically of interrupting. Is interrupting viewed differently in different cultures or is it seen as rude just across the board? No, it's not rude in France. It's mm-hmm. They interrupt you all the time. It's part of your capacity to have a good conversation and you're taught as a child that you should be interesting and you should be well-educated. They take a a four-hour exam to get out of high school just on philosophy, and it's an <laughs> exam that's not matching its essay. That's just part of the of Le Bac. So they are very proud of their knowledge and history and philosophy and the arts and math and science, everything. So they love conversation. They love interrupting. They They don't consider it that. However, you go to Asia, nobody will interrupt you. And the problem is that you're busy thinking that you are brilliant and you're, you know, you've got the whole room attentively hanging on every word. Basically, they're waiting for you to finish. And then there has to be a pause. And it's got a word for it called ma in Japanese, which is like the interval in between words and bows. You can even see it. It's a silence, a form of space that they have in their architecture and everything. There's a whole chapter on this. So what do you use silence for in different cultures versus constant conversation and which is polite? And and it's vital when you're negotiating because you'll never get that translator to give you all the data if you don't stop and let them translate multiple pieces of information before you ask another question. Hmm. I'm curious to say that you are in a business meeting and you do something that is a faux pas. What's your advice on recovering quickly and moving on? Apologizing in the United States is really awkward for us because, first of all, it's a liability, sort of. Uh You've admitted you've made a mistake or you're guilty or it's maybe grounds for a dismissal or 
you look weak when you say, oh, I'm so sorry. All those things are here and they don't translate to other cultures. In many parts of the world, even just go to England. Have you ever been with someone from the UK and they bump into a chair and they apologize literally to the chair? (laughs) Oh, pardon me. You know, so it's constant apologizing in Japan, for example, happens hundreds of times a day. And it's different there also because it's a consensus-based culture. So it's a group scenario when someone apologizes there. It's not, I personally am going to lose everything over this, although they will fall on the, you know, use themselves as a sacrificial lamb sometimes and apologize for things that are not their fault. But apologizing is sort of everything is predicated upon an apology when you make a gross error in Asia. If you don't apologize, you cannot start to do business there again. So that's like the starting point. And it's just very commonplace. And alternatively, say that you are working in the States and someone from another country comes to do business with you and he or she does something that in America people would see as a faux pas. What's your advice about being gracious about it? Oh, well, you would never confront them publicly about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You, If you want to keep an, a relationship with that person, you never forcefully, publicly call out an error. You have a third party, tell them about it in private, hopefully over a meal to really, you know, sandwich the bad inside all sorts of good things. But commonly when we see something, we, you know, we call people out on, no, that's not right, or I don't agree with you or so forth. Even the word no has tremendous ramifications in other cultures. So rather than someone saying, no, don't do that, or no, I don't want to do business with you, people in other cultures have all kinds of ways of subtly communicating things to you. Rather than saying no, for example, they'll say, I'll try in everywhere from India to Asia. And in Asia, if they say something like, "Um, okay, we'll have to go back to corporate and think about that, or that could be difficult, that's no, no, you can't do that. Or no, we're not doing business that way. Or even in Mexico, there's a little word called ahorita, which means literally in a little minute, in a, just right now. Ahorita can be a way of saying no to someone. And, it, and there's an anecdote about that in the book. And it's very, very important that you pick up on subtleties and you give people subtle cues as well and be very gracious, as you said about, you know, any errors that they may make. All right. And that's everything we have time for today. Tara, I want to thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Lots of fun to chat with you, and I appreciate the time. Yes, me too. And listeners, thank you for joining us as well. If you like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals, Asked and Answered.